First John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. A person can spend years studying Michelangelo, his political aspirations, the painter's influence on Renaissance art, yet never stand in the Sistine Chapel. Look up at that ceiling and marvel at his masterpiece. A man can work in a lab, peer through a microscope as he crossbreeds grasses and flowers, yet never wiggle his toes in velvety sod or smell a freshly cut rose. Someone can be a military expert, a student of battle strategies and troop deployments, yet never see with their own eyes a wounded soldier carried off on a stretcher or feel the terror of bullets flying over one's head. I know folks who complain about the hatred they find in the world and how people today no longer care about each other. Yet their longest lasting friendship is six months. And they've never spent the night in a hospital with anyone who wasn't their, a member of their own family. You can talk about love, even quote poetry. But have you stood with a spouse through their battle with cancer? Or walk through a child with a child through troubled waters. I'm just saying there is a difference between the theoretical and the actual. There are two types of knowledge, academic and experiential. You can know about something and not really know what that something is about. Just ask the Apostle John. John was a young man when he met Jesus, probably late teens or early 20s. It's believed he was the youngest of Jesus' disciples. And John witnessed it all. He was there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee when Jesus began his ministry. He saw the healings, the lepers cleansed, the multitude miraculously fed. He saw firsthand Lazarus rise from the dead. Of the twelve, John was the only disciple who escorted Jesus to the cross and watched Romans execute his master. 
John was there when they laid his body in a tomb. And of course, three days later, John was one of the first disciples to discover that the same tomb was empty. For the 40 days following, John witnessed the risen Lord Jesus coming and going, proving the reality of his resurrection. John even saw Jesus ascend back into heaven. John was the leader in the early church. He went with Peter to Samaria to confirm the spread of the gospel. Later, John ended up in Asia, what is today the country of Turkey, among seven churches. He probably fled Jerusalem in the great dispersion of 70 AD. You remember the Jews revolted against the occupying Romans. Rome retaliated, burned down their temple, and drove away the Jews. Yet John's escape from Jerusalem was like stepping out of the fire and into the frying pan, literally. For Roman persecution followed the believers in Jesus. In the succeeding decades, John was the only one of Jesus' 12 apostles who was spared a martyr's death. And it wasn't because the Romans didn't try to kill him. The emperor Domitian ordered John to be turned into a French fry. He was boiled in a pot of hot oil. Miraculously, the Lord delivered John. And since Domitian couldn't kill him, he was banished to Patmos, a rock island off the Turkish coast where John would receive the revelation. After the emperor Domitian's death, John was freed. He returned to Ephesus to pastor the churches in Asia. What an amazing life John lived. Raised in a tiny fishing village on the banks of a lake in Galilee, just a common fisherman, he was transformed when his life intersected with Jesus. John became a leader in a movement that would shake the whole known world. John's life experiences were unparalleled. In his second and third letters, he calls himself simply the elder. And no one questioned who that described. There could be only one, the elder, and that was the apostle John, the disciple who walked with Jesus. But the first seven decades of Christianity gave rise to other elders, or so-called elders. Men joined the ranks of Christianity in the newborn church who claimed to be godly, but were actually ignorant or charlatans. Imagine Ephesus in the first century A.D. It was the crossroads between East and West, Europe and Asia, Rome and the Orient. Think of the cultural influences pressing in on the church. Christianity was attempting to survive in a boiling cauldron of rural paganism, oriental mysticism, and Greek philosophies. This meant ambitious, power-hungry men were coming into the church with their own tall tales and fanciful philosophies and self-seeking boasts. And in this letter, Pastor John, he tells his flock, wait, there is a difference between knowing about something and really knowing what that something is about. You see, John is an old man now. He's walked with Jesus for 70 years. Yet now he's listening to these educated, brainy, slick spokespeople characterize Christianity and philosophize about life when they really didn't know what they were talking about. They have their ideas of Jesus, but they didn't know him like John knew him. 
John is tired of the misinformation and the complication. In contrast to their guesses and their theories, John knows that he knows that he knows. He was there, man. He heard Jesus speak. His insights were personal to John. And John wants those under his care to understand who Jesus really is and what it means to follow him. And it's ironic to me just how much the spiritual landscape of 21st century America resembles that of 1st century Ephesus. For we too are bombarded with misinformation and complication. Teachers have come in the name of Jesus who really don't know the Jesus they profess. Folks, today they speak of God and they philosophize about life, but their ideas are based on half-baked paganism and self-esteeming psychology more than divine truth. Even under the Christian banner, we're often not sure if what we're getting is truth or fluff. Are we hearing timeless truth or twisted truth? Have the teachings we receive been adjusted to our ears or are we hearing straight up what came from the mouth of Jesus? We need to hear from someone who really knows, who knows Jesus, who knows firsthand what he's talking about. We need to study the letters of John. For here the apostle says in verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. John is reporting firsthand information. If you watched a football game on TV lately, you've seen the farmer's insurance commercial where the agent makes the comment, We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. Well, that could have been John's slogan. That's what he says here. Hey, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. John and his fellow disciples heard Jesus with their own ears. They saw him with their own eyes. They scrutinized him in their minds. They even touched him with their own hands. Reading First John is like sending someone into Jesus' camp wearing a wire. It's an eyewitness account. John's life wasn't altered by stories that he had heard or things he had imagined or someone else's clever argument or some feel-good philosophy. John met a man in real life. They lived side by side for three and a half years. They became friends. Jesus was everything John hoped he'd be. He touched John's life in radical ways. Recently, I was meeting with a group of pastors, and I heard one of the pastors, he had a fascinating testimony. Pastor Anthony is starting a Calvary Chapel in Dothan, Alabama. And oh, 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 how those Alabama folks need the gospel. (laughs) Pray for Anthony. But it's amazing how Anthony says he came to the Lord. He was converted when he read a scripture. But not John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Not even Romans 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Not any of the verses that you hear people quote when people usually give a testimony. No, when Anthony was led to the Lord, it was by 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. This is the verse that converted him. It's where Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, and says, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. When I heard him say that, I thought, how does that verse convert anybody to Jesus? That's crazy. But here's what Anthony told us. He said he had always thought of the Bible as a collection of make-believe and mythology. But when he read that verse, it hit him that this book had to be written by a real person, an actual human being in a real-life situation, by an author who was cold and alone. And so he asked his friend to bring him a warm coat and a couple of magazines. Anthony concluded, if the Bible is about stuff that actually happens to you, if it's historical and addresses real people in real-life situations, it best be taken seriously. And this is how John introduces us to Jesus. The master is real. Jesus is alive. John touched Jesus, and Jesus touched John, and the touching continues. Christianity is not just something mystical or ethereal or spiritual. It's more than a philosophy and abstract ideas. It is a faith you can get your hands around. I want you to do something this morning. I want you to reach over and grab the shoulder of the person sitting next to you. Go ahead and do it. Just reach over and grab the shoulder of that person. That's a nice moment, isn't it? But Christianity is that real. It's reaching out and touching somebody. Hey, you can get a handle on Jesus. Once there was a young child... He awoke in the middle of the night. He called out to his mother, touch me, please touch me with your finger. She thought that was a rather strange request. The mother asked, why, son? He cried out, I'm not here. Touch me, mommy, so I may be here. You see, the child didn't feel like he existed until he had been touched. And the cry of this little boy is the cry to God from every human heart. We all long to be touched by God. We don't feel truly here. We question our existence and our purpose for living until our Creator touches us. God, of course, waits until we repent, until we turn to His Son in faith. In the meantime, while we well, in the meantime, while we go untouched, we seek to justify our existence in a million other ways. Is that what you've been doing? Are you empty and lonely? Do you long to be touched in a meaningful way by something greater than yourself or someone greater than yourself, the hands that created you in the first place? And in the absence of what you need, are you seeking other things in its place? John said life started for him when he touched and was touched by Jesus. And he calls him the word of life. Again, John writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Jesus didn't have a beginning. He was from the beginning. You remember John's gospel starts, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus was God. He was fully human, and he was fully divine. You see, every heresy involves confusing this central truth. The false teacher errs on one side or the other. He either stresses Jesus' humanity in a way that diminishes his deity, or he exalts his godhood to such an extreme that it limits Jesus' humanity. The truth, though, is in both. Jesus is all God, and he is all man. In becoming man, he never stopped being God. And as God, he was never prohibited from being human. Jesus wasn't God one day and man the next. In being God, he was always man, and in being man, he was always God. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Think of it this way. Take a red paint and a blue paint. Let red represent humanity. We come from the dirt. In the south, the dirt is red. Let blue represent deity. God sits in heaven, high above the blue sky. Take the two paints and blend them together. Mix them so thoroughly that you can no longer tell where the red ends and the blue begins, or where the blue ends and the red begins. Keep blending those colors, and eventually you get purple. And purple is the royal color. And it is King Jesus, our Messiah. He is the perfect blend of both God and man. John doesn't just say that Jesus was from the beginning. He also calls him the word of life. This term that John uses, word, was technical verbiage in the Greek language. It was used by their philosophers. The Greek word is logos, the logos of life. The Greeks observed the order and symmetry in nature, and they concluded there had to be a cause behind the cosmos. They searched for and they theorized about this grand purpose. They even named it the Logos. As my words expressed the thoughts in my head, the Logos revealed the mind and purpose behind the universe. Yet the Greek philosophers were unable to identify the Logos. It remained to them an unknown force. But here John shocks his readers by reporting that he has seen and he has listened to and he has scrutinized. And my oh my, his hands have even touched the logos. He handled it. He heard it. He even hugged it. For what the Greeks thought of as an impersonal force, John knew as a personal friend. John knows that the reason behind all reality is not an it but a he, and his name is Jesus. And John writes this letter so you can know him too. And you can experience the joy and the life and the light and the love that's in Jesus. John adds in verse 2, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. 
the meaning of life, the unified theory behind all that exists. It isn't some cryptic, hidden, mysterious secret. The Logos has now been revealed, John says. As verse 2 puts it, manifested, which means put on display. And John had the privilege to meet the Logos. He spent three and a half years rubbing up against eternity. John realizes he broke bread with the philosopher's pursuit. With every human's quest, eternal life and ultimate meaning is found in John's friend, Jesus. He says in verse 3, And that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John's faith was more than theory. It was more than philosophy. It was faith in a real person. And John was privileged to live up close with that person. John touched Jesus, and Jesus touched John. And yet he doesn't write of that relationship as a past friendship. Notice John and Jesus might have been old friends, but hey, they were still friends. Their relationship had stayed current, for Jesus is alive. And by his Holy Spirit, John fellowshiped with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And John's intent in writing this letter is for you and I to enjoy the same relationship that he had experienced. I think it is crucial for us to identify God's top priority for our lives. Have you done that? What is God's number one goal for you? You see, until we nail this down, we're destined for frustration. Let me put it to you in a multiple choice question. Which is most important? Number one, to get to heaven. Number two, to serve God. Number three, to do God's will. Number four, to know God more. In other words, God created you and now he has redeemed you. Why? To get you to heaven so you can serve God, to do God's will, or to know him more. In your mind right now, I want you to pick one of those four. What do you think the correct answer is? We'll see if you get it right. In reality, very few Christians do. I want us to think about these four choices for a few moments. Number one, get to heaven. Hey, it's important to go to heaven, especially considering the alternative. But what about until then? What about until you get to heaven? And after you're there, what will you do? Number two, serving God. It's certainly true that we all should want to serve God. And God has meaningful service for all his kids. But if we're all about serving and there's nothing in our lives that refreshes us, we're destined for spiritual burnout. Perhaps you've been there, done that. I have. Number three is to do God's will. Certainly life does go better when we live it in God's will. Steer outside the white lines of God's will and you're headed for a crash. But once we're in the will of God, what then? Isn't there just more to our relationship with God than simply avoiding trouble? This is why the correct answer is number four, to know God more. John says he writes this letter 
for the same reason you were created and you were saved, so that you might have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm glad I'm going to heaven, and I love serving the Lord, and I desire with all my heart to walk in His will. But if that's all you're about, heaven will seem boring. Serving God will turn into a drudgery. And walking in the will of God ends up feeling restrictive and, quite frankly, pointless. The deeper purpose for my life is to know God. It's to fellowship with Him. It's to learn to lean on Him. It's to spend time with Him. To know and be known by the God who created me. This is why Jesus died on the cross. So that you and I could know God. The first man, Adam, he walked with God in the garden. And the Bible uses such sweet imagery to depict it. Genesis says, it was Adam's habit to walk with God, and I quote, in the cool of the day. I like that. Imagine in the late afternoon, while the sun was setting, the heat of the day is now past, the cool night air is closing in, and there's the Almighty with his child by his side. They're discussing the day and life and eternity and who knows what else. And this was the experience that Adam looked forward to every single day of his life. You see, the first man lived life in a conscious awareness of God's presence. And this is now God's desire for us. This is what Christianity is all about. God wants you to have fellowship with him. And what is that fellowship? You know, over the course of this book, we'll talk a lot about fellowship. It's one of John's reoccurring themes. But right now, here's the short definition. How about two fellows in the same ship? That's fellowship. Think about it. You have been invited to climb on board with Jesus, to sail together, to talk together, to eat together, to visit places together, to remain in the same boat together. Think of all this means. Jesus no longer wants you to think of your life independent from his. See, if all you're focused on is just getting to heaven or doing ministry and serving God or finding God's will for your life, then Christianity will feel boring and tiring and restricting. Don't you know the great pastime of heaven will be knowing God? The underlying benefit of serving is knowing God. And the major joy found in his will is the opportunity to know him more. Don't turn these means into ends. It's only when knowing God more is our number one goal will we find fulfillment and joy in our relationship with him. As John puts it in verse 4, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. The byproduct of knowing God and cultivating a sense of his presence in our lives is a deep down abiding fullness of joy. If you want your heart to be an overflowing cup of joy, slow down, quiet your mind, open it up to the Savior and give him an opportunity to reveal his presence to you. Verse 5 tells us, This is the message which we have heard from him, and declare to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. God is a person, but He has characteristics similar to the properties of light. 
Light invigorates and illuminates, as does God. Light warms, as God does in our lives. Light light drives out the darkness. Light produces color and beauty. All these things God also does in our lives. God is not like the moon, the light of the moon. He's not a reflected light. God is like the light of the sun. He is a radiant light. In other words, He is the source of light. He is the source of love and purity and beauty. God is the source of all these things. Realize, God doesn't just abide by a standard, an arbitrary standard. No, God is the standard. He is the source of all these things. God has become the standard for us all. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And John continues this analogy of light, verse 6. For if we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You know, it's interesting. Every living thing struggles toward the light. It does. House plants grow toward the window. Why? Because they, life leans toward the light. Everything living struggles for the light. The only plants that don't are the dead ones. John is adamant. You can say you know Jesus, that you're alive in Him. Yet if you walk in darkness, you're living a lie. You're lying to yourself and you're lying to others. In other words, if you like the shade, man, you're shady. You're living out of touch with God. And I'm afraid this is the case with many so-called Christians today. They're shady. They hang out in the shadows. They love the gray. They've compromised with this world. They've become comfortable in the shadows. They entertain themselves with sin and cultivate dark appetites. They are no longer fighting toward the light. This is how you know you are alive in God. You are fighting for the light. You can't walk in darkness and walk with God. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis, he starts his story in the gray city of the dead. The narrator boards a bus along with ghostly creatures from the underworld. These passengers are selfish and petty and quarrelsome. Well, the bus makes its final stop in a city full of light. But the passengers on the bus, they don't like this city. They call it a cruel light, for it exposes them as the ghastly and horrible people they've become. When they see the bright people, the shining people approaching them from deep heaven, all the passengers want to board the bus. They want to go back and get on the bus. What they dislike most is the light. And this is what, exactly what John describes here. People who walk in this world's darkness have rejected God's light. John tells us why it's so important to walk in light. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, here's how we grow as Christians. We walk in God's light. It's that simple. See, plants grow by a process called photosynthesis. A plant has cells that transform light into energy. They absorb the light and they use it to process food and thereby grow. Likewise, a Christian grows by a kind of spiritual photosynthesis. 
The human spirit is designed to absorb the light of God. The presence of Jesus in my life is the catalyst by which I become more godly and good and loving and kind and pure, more Christ-like. The more time I spend in the light, the more like Christ I become. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 explains the process. It says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Living in God's presence has a mirror effect. The more I hang out with God, the more I avail myself to His light, the more He rubs off on me. Remember, it's not up to a plant to grow. Light causes its growth. And it's not up to the Christian to grow by their own devices. We don't grow ourselves. Our job is to just stay in the light. And it's the light of Christ that fuels us with a steady and a fruitful spiritual growth. In essence, Christians need to be spiritual bugs. You want to be a spiritual bug? should. Look at my porch light in the summertime, and you'll watch all of the moss, all of the bugs, all the mosquitoes hovering around that light. We need to be like spiritual bugs and live in the light of God. We need to gravitate toward the light. That's what changes us. Read His Word. Worship His majesty. Rest in His peace. Behold His glory. Seek His presence. Be a lover of God's light. You grow by hanging out in the light. In fact, here's what we all need. We need to be working on a spiritual tan. Now, some of you sport a nice tan in the summertime. And a tan requires very little effort. Just find you a nice spot on the beach. Stretch out a towel. Do the rotisserie burn from time to time. Just kind of roll over from time to time. And before you know it, you're baked and beautiful. All it took was time and exposure. And this is how we grow in Christ, through time and exposure. Just spending daily time in the light of God's presence, letting the God beams, His glory, so to speak, rub off on you. The light of Jesus gets absorbed into our character, into our disposition. Live in God's presence, John says, and the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us. The blood of Jesus provides a slow burn. It continually purifies our lives. But read verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now here's what hinders God's light from having this effect on us. Dishonesty. It's dishonesty. Hide your sin. Cover up your sin. Ignore it. Deny it. Walk around self-righteous. Think you no longer need to be changed and purified. Such self-deception acts like a 45 sunblock. It shuts out the light. Repentance is the desire to change. And if we don't maintain a repentant spirit, it stunts the light's effect. John says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Don't misunderstand. Repentance isn't the absence of sin. It's just the willingness to confess it. And it's the desire to change. 
And it's the open window that lets in the light. John says none of us are sinless. No matter how much you grow spiritually, as long as you inhabit a sin-stained body and live in a sin-infested world, at times you're going to sin. It's been said a Christian isn't sinless, just a person who sins less and less. I think that's true. This is why verse 9 is so important. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. we just got to be honest about it. We've just got to confess what we've done. And again in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The key is honesty. Stop dodging. Stop excusing. Stop denying. What God is looking for is that we own what we've done. Once a Catholic priest was hearing the confessional of this older lady. She was hard of hearing. and Because of it, she would shout out her sins so loud that everybody in the church could hear. Well, the priest suggested that from now on, the lady could just write down her sins. Just walk in and hand him a list. Well, the next week, she entered the confessional booth, and she handed the priest the list that she had written. He looked at it, and he said, Ma'am, I'm sorry, but this is your grocery list. The poor lady shouted, Oh, dear, I left my sins at Publix. I'm pretty sure Publix doesn't want your sins. But you really can leave your sins with Jesus. Hey, he promises that if you just confess them to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We just got to fess up. We got to own what we've done. It's been said the only sin that God won't forgive is an unconfessed sin. John says whenever we sin, we should immediately ask God to forgive us and cleanse us. Now, of course, this verse prompts a question. If the moment we're saved, God forgives us of all our sins, our past sins, our present sins, our future sins, why do we still need to confess them? And here's the answer. Our confession maintains a repentant attitude. As far as God is concerned, our forgiveness was assured by the blood of Jesus at the time we were born again. But our repentance is kept up to date and nurtured by honest, humble confession. Confession is what keeps my heart in the right posture. It keeps us receptive to God's light and thus able to grow. Well, let me close this morning with a reminder. There is a difference between theoretical and experiential knowledge. If you're tired of folks who talk about God but are really just guessing, If you want to know your faith is real, have a faith that you can really get your hands around, then listen to John. He was there. He saw. He heard. He handled. And he wants us to live in touch with this God, to live in his light and be changed and cleansed by Jesus.